Left to our own devices for a day in Old Havana, my wife and I ambled about Calle Mercaderes, looking for the cigar shop and cafe. It was pointed out to us in passing by our guide a few days earlier. Now, relying solely on hazy recollection, I studied each open facade searching for the lobby I would surely recognize when I saw it. You can tell this was before we were married, as my wife didn't say a word about me using instinct as a compass. But alas, we came upon Conde de Villanueva. Making our way through the lobby and around the front desk, we entered the large open atrium area, common in colonial Spanish architecture. Sunlight poured in from above, dripping off lazy palm fronds and illuminating the pallid yellow walls in noonday glow. We followed a green iron staircase up to a thin mezzanine, along which the wall was lined with framed photos of famous cigar smokers, presumably who had also found this little respite from the hot Cuban day. The quaint shop was in direct contrast to the frondescent atrium, wooden walls lined with cigar cases and some leather lounge chairs. It was the first time I had seen lighting a cigar with a cedar stick. One lights a strip of cedar, then uses the cedar to light the cigar. Supposedly, this eliminates the chemicals from using a lighter and adds a natural flavor to the cigar. Being the confident gentleman I am, I proceeded clumsily attempting to light my wife's cigar. Yet, as one might expect, using a large dancing flame which does not want to cooperate in the slightest and is rapidly climbing towards your fingers on the burning piece of timber you're holding is not as easy as it sounds. And to my credit, though, it doesn't even sound easy. So, after the hardened older Cuban man came out from behind the counter, sauntered over to my wife's chair with the suave debonair of a seasoned caballero, shook his head at me, and handily lit my wife's cohiba, we made our way to the bar. Off to the side of the cigar lounge was a very small, dimly lit room with a small bar along one wall. After some time, a fellow joined us. He wore the stereotypical Cuban military hat, the kind we see in pictures of Castro, a military-style jacket, and otherwise regular clothes. We eventually struck up conversation, both speaking enough of the other's language to suffice. The topic came up of how happy I was to visit Cuba, as growing up in the 80s, we never thought we'd see Havana. Gradually, catching a midday happy buzz, I went into my rhetoric on how normal people are basically the same everywhere and the governments argue while the people just want to live and raise their families and drink some cervezas with friends and... Then I saw the look from my wife. The one that lets me know it's time to stop talking. Knowing when to play the kind-hearted, oblivious outsider has served me well over the years and my wife's ability to squint her mind's eye and see through bullshit is well documented. So, we tapered the conversation off, and he eventually moved on from us gringos. I don't know if there was anything to that encounter. I never felt unsafe. Was he checking to see what the Americans were doing alone in Havana? Did the two gentlemen in the cigar lounge notice a couple of Americans drinking and carrying on and decide to call us in? Nothing ever came of it, and we spent a few hours there smoking and sipping. It was one of my fondest memories of that trip. They comped our bar tab after I purchased three boxes of cigars. I feel like rum is so cheap there, one gets the impression they're trying to give it away. <laughs> I was drinking Crystal, Havana's light beer. My wife, on the other hand, was embodying our free day in Habana Vieja with a steady stream of Cuba Libres. 
Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Tony. Welcome to Pod Tiki, where today we're making Cuba Libres. We think we grow out of cola as a mixer, don't we? But rum and coke is not only what a majority of us started our drinking careers with, it's the occasional drinkers go to when they don't know what to order. When I met my friend Kyle, the one for whom the Kai Tai is named, his out-of-the-bar drink was the rum and coke. It seems vapid, banal, lazy even. But so ingrained is cola as an American beverage, we could hardly speak of cocktailia without acknowledging its role in our journey. The road to modern drinking is paved by rum and coke. Yet, it's consistently looked down upon. For proof of that, I just spent a whole paragraph endeavoring to convince you it shouldn't be. I take great pains to stay true to the authenticity of the drinks we cover without crossing the hipster Rubicon. Bitters and fresh juices, they can transform a so-so drink into a work of flavor art, but are not always necessary to make a traditional drink, or a good one for that matter. In fact, I think some of these my versions and new spins some of y'all like to use sort of take away from the traditional cocktail. Yet, this is cognitive dissonance on my part, because at the heart of tiki is creativity. My point of view resides in a weird place somewhere between authenticity and invention. It must be the Gemini in me. Anyway, let's get back to taking a look at this classic portmanteau. Is it portmanteau? Portmanteau? Portmanteau. <laughs> also, the Cuba Libre is probably mostly the, the American vernacular way of saying Cuba. It would be referred to as Cuba, Cuba Libre back then. I'll probably refer to it both ways here, so... Uh, don't make fun of me too much for my pronunciation. Whereas tiki culture is predicated on exploring and bringing exotica home, sometimes it works in reverse. Sometimes a piece of Americana is too pervasive for sea to shining sea, so it hitches a ride across one. Such is the case of the Cuba Libre. You see, during World War II, Coca-Cola actually set up small operations on U.S. military bases in an attempt to bring the boys a literal taste of home. But how did Coke become such an integral part of the American fabric in the first place? After being wounded in the Civil War, Colonel John Pemberton found himself a bit of a liking for the old morphine drip. There wasn't exactly a lavish Malibu rehab to send him off to, mainly because California had only been a state less than two decades prior, and apparently the rehabs came a few months later. Luckily, Pemberton was also a doctor and a pharmacist, which in those days I think meant he was the only guy with a hacksaw and a bottle of laudanum, so everybody was like, well, I guess he's the doctor now. Pemberton did eventually find his magic cure for addiction by mixing coca leaves with cola nuts. They didn't really have a handle on addiction back then. He sold this elixir out of his Atlanta-based Pemberton's Eagle Drug and Chemical House. <laughs> when Atlanta passed its own early prohibition laws in 1886, Pemberton's cola empire really began to bubble up, and he officially registered Coca-Cola, the temperance drink. I don't need to point out the irony in that. This early concoction was marketed to cure cure all sorts of ailments from ranging from morphine addiction to headaches to even impotence. Yeah, no shit. It was cocaine and caffeine. <laughs> After a litany of corporate shuffling I won't bore you with, the Coca-Cola company was formed in 1892, 
just as the rise of soda fountains was becoming synonymous with early Americana. Active coca leaf was removed from the recipe in 1903, and during Prohibition, we really see coke getting a huge boost as not only a non-alcoholic beverage, but being used to cover up the acrid tastes of bootleg booze. The ink had hardly dried on repeal by the time the greatest generation was called upon to fight the evil forces of the Axis powers. As American GIs cemented Coke's foothold on the globe, those stationed in the South Pacific and Caribbean had cemented a love of their own. For rum. But some say rum and Coke has its origins even before this. Coca-Cola's diaspora of world domination had already begun by the turn of the 20th century. Coke branding could be spotted in the most remote areas of the world. The fizzy beverage was our first gift to the world, before John Wayne or apple pie or entitlement. But we're not here to talk about the corporate domination, we're here to talk about rum drinks. The term Cuba Libre, or Free Cuba, was purported to be used in the mid-1800s in regard to Cuba's fight for independence from Spain. The drink was associated, or the, dr- the drink associated then, would have been a mix of rum with either honey or molasses and water. The battle cry surfaced again during the Spanish-American War when an army camp in Jacksonville, Florida was dubbed Camp Cuba Libre. There's an apocryphal origin story where an American army captain stationed in Havana after the war squeezed a lime into a rum and Bacardi and toasted, quote, Por Cuba Libre. Sounds to me like Bacardi may have had a hand in proliferating that tale, especially since that was purported to happen in 1900 and Coke didn't start exporting its syrup to Havana till 1902. The more probable narrative is that rum and coke grew naturally in popularity as drinking tourism spread throughout the Caribbean, likely due to American palates changing post-prohibition. You see, drinkers had gotten used to the more mixer-than-spirit ratio due to a decade of hiding the flavor of bootleg whiskey. No doubt some poor working-class sop down in Havana was doing the same thing to mask cheap rum. After the war, American businesses flooded into Cuba as part of that whole move to secure political power on the island. Coca-Cola, of course, being a natural fit as U.S. travelers began our legacy of not wanting to go anywhere we can't get exactly what we have back home. Some adventurers we are. The mixture of rum and coke did have a demonstrative rise in popularity, though, during that sweet, that sweet spot between World War II and pre-Fidel Castro. One such boost came in the form of the man who brought the pencil-thin mustache to the islands before Buffett was even building sandcastles. Mr. Errol Flynn. It's true, some of his, transge- some of his transgressions would surely get him canceled today, and for good reason. But there's no denying the epic role he played as one of Hollywood's OG Caribbean cavorters. His rapacious reputation for imbibing made him a legend in Havana, second to only Papa Hemingway himself. Sloppy Joe's even created an eponymous cocktail for Errol that I'm sure we'll cover at some point. But Mr. Flynn so loved the Cuba Libre that such he the two became synonymous. When he wasn't cutting a striking figure on the big screen, Errol Flynn was cutting his rum with Coca-Cola in Havana. Unfortunately, the accusations of him using this drink to seduce underage actresses left a stain on his legacy that would take more than a little club soda to get out. While Errol's amoral antics made their way through the Caribbean party crowd, another boozy boon came in a bit more of a wholesome manner, by way of the Andrews sisters. 
Written by Lionel Belasco and originally recorded by Calypso legend Lord Invader, the song, the song Rum and Coca-Cola was a rhythmic ode to our tipple of topic and the American expats who drank it. But when the Andrews sisters released their version in 1945, well, let's just say we found out what made the Bugle Boy boogie. The hit song transformed the drink from a way-to-mask-cheap rum into an amalgamation of Cuban-American standard drinking. Remember when PBR was a $1.50 skunk beer? Then Zach Brown mentioned it in a song, and all of a sudden, every bar in town started charging 5 bucks a can? It was like that. All it took then was for Bacardi to seize the opportunity, claiming the drink as their own, and finally, the Cuba Libre was mainstream. Even back then, though, it was looked down upon despite its popularity. Proud Cuban cantineros wouldn't dare hold this tourist drink up against the Mojito or Daiquiri or Hotel Nacional cocktail. Decades later, even the Pina Colada would find greater favor as an island invention. But given how deeply Roman Coke is ingratiate in not only cocktailia but Americana, I contend the Cuba Libre is, a tr- is truly a creation in which the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. With that being said... Let's make a drink. At first glance, it would appear the addition of lime is the only distinction between a Cuba Libre and a regular old Roman Coke, but the devil is in the details. In this case, preparation. How do most of us make a Roman Coke? We eyeball a few ounces of rum into a glass, fill it with ice, and top it off with cola? Of course, if you dump a bunch of syrupy soda into any booze, it's going to taste good. Although... Aeroflin's recipe of one small bottle of Coke to one pint of Bacardi may do the trick for getting you there. There is not always a place you want to be, especially in Errol's case. But before we jump into recipes, let's go over ingredients. Rum. Of course, the most traditional spirit would be an aged light Cuban rum like Havana Club Tres Años. As of right now, it's still a little difficult to get that into the States, so I have a few alternatives. We want to go with a full-flavor light rum. Though I don't generally mind the flavor of Bacardi, it's still a great rum, but we want something here that's rich enough to cut through the heavy notes of cola and sugar. And there aren't any, there's not really that many aged light rums on the American market, so I lean towards blends like the Probitas from Foursquare, or Plantation Three Star, or even the Eldorado Light Demerara, which I believe is actually aged three years. Denizen White is also a new favorite in the Tiki household. For this one, it truly does just depend on what you personally enjoy the flavor of. I'm not going to sit here and tell you I don't like a dark rum and coke. Um, Nowadays in Cuba, they actually do use an amber rum. Uh, If you look on the Havana Club website, Jamaica rum is great and a spice captain and coke is wonderful around the holidays, but that's a different drink. So I stick with light rum for Cuba Libres. As for the cola, regular coke tends to be overly sugar syrupy with that high fructose and all that so i go for the mexican coke in the glass bottle it still uses real sugar and let's be honest the classic bottle looks pretty cool if you can't find it at a grocery store um most of the mexican markets around town should carry it and of course fresh limes as aforementioned preparation is key here and between the rum and coke and the cuba libre so listen up here we're gonna go two ounces of light rum half ounce of lime juice, four ounces of cola, and some ice. But don't just dump that all in there like crazy. True to the Sloppy Joe's procedure, first we're going to shake the rum and the lime juice in a shaker with ice, and then strain it into a glass. I use a tall glass like a Pilsner. 
Then we're going to slow in, we're going to slowly stir in the four ounces of Coca-Cola and then top it off with ice. This ensures a well-blended, well-balanced drink. Garnish with a lime wedge and voila, there you have a true Cuba Libre. Notice the small amount of cola pushes the rum forward rather than covers it up. Some cantineros and mixologists alike have begun adding Angostura to their Cuban cocktails. With cola, I find it gives the drink a tannic, rusty flavor. I don't, I, don't, I don't go for it. I don't fancy it. For my cigar geeks out there, I smoked a Viva La Vida Robusto with this, and it was great. That cigar really cuts through. It has a lot of flavor. But in closing, finding out the links and stories that contribute to the lore of these drinks is really a bonus of Patiki I was not expecting when I started. In that regard, no other drink really connects so many facets of Tropiki than the Cuba Libre. From Americana, Prohibition, to post-war expats, through the golden age of Cuban-American tourism, Jimmy Buffett singing about Errol Flynn's pencil-thin mustache, to 1940s pop song anthems, from frat parties to Caribbean beaches, as long as bartenders have coke in their guns and Bacardi on the shelf, as long as hipsters, historians, and enthusiasts like us endeavor to honor and build upon the past, and as long as people want a simple, classic drink to raise a glass and toast their victories, whether it's revolution or just making it to Friday, there will always be the Cuba Libre. Credits for this episode could be found at podtiki.com. I want to thank you all for listening. Please remember to visit podtiki.com and look at our recipes page if you want to look up any past recipes without having to go back and listen. All of our podcasts are actually blog posts if you want to go back and read any of the podcasts that we've done. A lot of people that listen online might not realize that I am actually a writer, not a podcaster. So uh, I actually write these articles and then just kind of do Patiki as a fun addition to it. So if you would rather read, they're all on Patiki. If you are a listener, I really, really appreciate every week, every month, whenever, whenever I drop these for you guys listening on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts. Um, I guess it's not iTunes now, right now it's Apple Podcasts. Um, I'm also, we're also on iHeart, uh, Spotify, of course, podtiki.com. All the episodes are there in the archives and the recipes. Thank you for all the new followers on Instagram. I know it doesn't seem like I have very much comparatively, so I'm working to get that up. Got some more cool stuff in the works for you guys, which might already be out by the time this drops, but if not, it's coming soon. And most of all, please drink responsibly. And please follow me at pod underscore tiki on Instagram or follow my personal page, rum underscore poet on Instagram or Facebook. And most, most, most of all, thank you all for listening and participating in the pod tiki community. Love each other. Be kind. Be safe. And I will see you next time. Keep it tiki out there.